you're in a series in the book of James where we are studying genuine faith. Uh, one of the big goals of this study is to walk through this book and see the various topics that James addresses. And then the series is called Reality Check. And the idea is every week there is some component of our faith for us to go, is that really me? Am I living that way? Do I really believe that? Is it more than words? That's what we're going through. And today, James, for the last three weeks, he's been dealing with trials. He's going to continue dealing with trials, but instead of talking about the way in which trials can positively impact us, which is what the bulk of his message has been, it's now a different side. James wants to talk about the temptations that come along with our trials. The Reader's Digest printed a story about an overweight businessman who had decided it was time to lose some weight. He took the new diet very seriously, including changing a particular driving route that he had that went by his favorite bakery. One morning, however, he showed up at work and he had a gigantic coffee cake with him. Everyone in the office who knew what he was doing scolded him, and yet the man just smiled. And he said, this is a special coffee cake. I accidentally drove by the bakery this morning, and there in the window were a host of baked goods. And I felt this was no accident. So I prayed. Lord, if you want me to have one of those delicious coffee cakes, let there be a parking spot right in the front. And sure enough, the eighth time around the block, there it was. Trials and temptations. Here's the main thing I want to convey before we dive into the text. Every trial we go through comes with a set of temptations. You don't get one without the other. Right? And those temptations, in order to get this, I want you to see a difference. A trial is a difficult circumstance that we go through that God, according to James, can use for our good. A temptation is an enticement to sin. It's luring us into evil. Those two things are not the same. However, in the midst of our trials, there are often temptations. Right? Here's how I, would, how I would explain this, give an example. Imagine that you are financially suffering. Maybe you've lost a job. Maybe you don't have much of a savings. Maybe you're looking into the future and you're trying to find one but can't get one, and you're struggling financially. Here's what God might do with that trial. Were you to go through it in the way that James is talking about for the first 12 verses? God might take that trial and teach you to trust him in ways you were not trusting him before. God might take that trial and teach you that the material goods that you thought were so important aren't nearly as important as you thought they were. God might take that trial and use it to give you an empathy, a greater amount of compassion 
for those who don't have as much because you go through it and you come out on the other side and actually want to serve more in those areas. However, along with those trials and good things God might want to bring are the temptations. Temptations to perhaps, I really need some money. Maybe if I just cut corners and do this one thing, this one time, I will make some money and I need it, I really need it. Or the temptation to begin to go, well if God really loved me, if God was really good and on my side, I wouldn't be going through this. You see, our trials come with temptations, but the two things are not the same. The question is, and what James comes to at this point is, how do we go through our trials without succumbing to the temptations? How do we get those things that God wants in our lives, the way he wants to mature us and train us and teach us, without falling to the temptations that can bring us the wrong direction? And the way he does it is he offers a couple of truths, things that if we were to believe what he says, and really, I mean, they would be in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls, they would take us through our temptations. Open your Bibles, if you would, to James chapter 1. We're in verse 13. James chapter 1 and verse 13. The first truth. Let no one say when he is tempted... I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Here's how James begins. All this stuff on trials, with the last week where we talked about maybe one of our most difficult ones when it comes to wealth. That is a trial for everybody, whether you have a lot of money or you don't have a lot of money. But as he comes off of that and he offers that blessing that when you hold on, God offers the crown of life. He then says, however, as you go through your trial, here's the first truth. Temptations never come from God. Whatever it is we're going through, they never come from God. That's the first thing he wants us to know. And the way he says it is this way. Um, it's interesting in Greek, trial and temptation in this case are actually the same word, but the context determines the meaning. And so in order to not confuse you, the translation says, let no one be, t- when he is tempted, say I am being tempted. However, you could also read it this way. When I am being tested or I'm going through a trial, which is what he's been talking about, let no one say they're being tempted by God. When they are going through this and those things rise up, well, maybe I should do this to get out of it, or maybe God is really like this, not like he says he is. Don't ever think that's from God. And here's why. For God cannot be tempted with evil, which is an interesting argument. What exactly does that mean? Why does that mean God can't tempt anybody? If temptation is the enticement to evil and God can't even be enticed. Evil holds no sway whatsoever with him. He has no inkling toward it. It never comes up and God even goes, maybe. 
ever. He's just not interested in evil whatsoever. In fact, the opposite is true according to the scripture. He hates evil, which means it has no influence or impact on him whatsoever. And listen, if temptation is the enticement to evil and God, I mean, evil can't influence him whatsoever. Is he ever going to try to entice you to evil? Never. That's not him. As I was thinking about this, I thought, in my mind, there is one thing that my wife hates. She will not eat fish. Period. If it was in water, she won't eat it. It, it could be snapper or salmon or it could be shrimp. I mean, none of it. She wants nothing to do with it. She hates fish. Here's the one thing I could tell you. My wife will never try to entice you to eat fish. In fact, it is more likely that it would be like in a, in a hero, kind of superhero mode where you go to bring it to your mouth and she runs and leaps in slow motion and knocks it out of your hand. That's what you're likely to get. The same is true with God. There is no conceivable way he will ever try to entice you to evil. On the other hand, here's where James goes with it. God cannot be tempted with evil, and so he tempts no one with it. But, here's the second truth. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then, desire, when it conceives, when it goes fully out, when it comes to fruition, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Truth number one, temptation never comes from God. Truth number two, temptation always resides within our own desires. We are the ones who must accept responsibility for when we are tempted. Right? And temptation itself, it's not evil. The writer of Hebrews actually says that the Lord Jesus Christ was tempted in every way and yet did not sin. It's the enticement to it. And this language he uses where he says, but each person when tempted is lured and enticed. He uses these images. One is a fishing image of being lured in. It's as if the hook was thrown out, you get on it, and that's your desires, and it's pulling you toward the sin. The other is a trap, it's bait. And it's when that trap is set and you approach it and you decide to go ahead and grab what's there and then the trap springs. That's what happens with our desires. Our desires begin the line of questioning. Should I circle this bakery one more time? Should I take that deal that will make me that money quickly so I can get out of my financial situation. We start down the path, and then at some point, sin. We take the action. But it's us, that's not God. And I think one of our biggest issues, we have a way of twisting 
things so that God takes a certain amount, if not most, of the responsibility. Now, I want to read you a, a little funny story. And I want to point out the subtlety in the story. Where instead of owning that we are actually the ones that bring us down this path, we want to divert that off to God. Here's the little story. A young boy named Bobby desperately wanted a bicycle. So he decided to save his nickels, his dimes, his quarters, everything he had until he could buy this bike. And every night, he would ask God to help him save money. He would kneel at his bed, and this is his prayer. Dear Lord, please help me save my money for a new bike. And please, Lord, don't let the ice cream man come down the street again tomorrow. Now, on the surface, that sounds like a, a good prayer. God, I need your help. Um, but I'm going to tell you what my thoughts would be I, and, and just see if you relate at all to this. If the ice cream man comes down the street, I'm at least partially going to blame God for not taking care of me. The fact, and if I go get ice cream, I'm going to, first I'm going to feel really guilty that I did it, but at some point as I think through it, I'm eventually going to start shifting blame over to God for not keeping the ice cream man off the streets, as if somehow this is his fault that I gave in to my desire. But is that not what we do? In the midst of our trials, one of our greatest temptations is to call God something he is not. To believe something about God that is not true. And what I think it comes down to is partly this. We all believe, I think, in the sovereignty of God. God is in control. We also believe in the goodness of God. The problem is, in the midst of our trials, his sovereignty is stronger than his goodness. Because we don't doubt his sovereignty, we doubt his goodness. Why would you have allowed this God? Are you really who I think you are? Why did you not stop this? You see, we fully believe he could have done it. But then we start doubting his goodness because he didn't. That's our thinking. That's not who he is. And I think in some ways it's become somewhat hardwired into us. I ran across this study that I thought was fascinating. 2018, they just published this, July. Um, here are statistics from 2016. Hardworking Americans, working age, have saved an average of $5,000 for retirement. That's it. 43% of working age families have no retirement at all. This is 2016. Right? We're not good at saving. And so Cornell University did a study on earning versus saving. In this study, they have discovered that our brains are at least partly responsible for our lack of saving. Unconsciously, we spend more brain power on earning than we do on saving. They set up this test where it was color-coded on a computer 
and you would go through this series where you were earning money and saving money. And as things popped up, you would make these choices. And in the end, the first time they went through it, 87.5% of everybody participating earned far more than they saved, even though there was equal chances for both. And here's the real thing that they pulled out of this. 75% of them developed temporal perceptions of color. I'm saying a warped temporal perception of color. Because here's what was happening. As the colors would flash up, even when the savings color flashed before the earnings color, they still thought the earnings color came up first. They were, I mean, their brain was so wired for, this, for the earning that it was actually interfering with their ability to even see the color of the savings. And so here was their kind of result. I mean, there were lots of them, but this is just one that is pertinent to us. They said the benefit is not so much, this is in, in learning to save, the benefit is not so much in the everyday cash value of what one saves. It's in building the brain's capacity to pay attention to saving. I would argue that our brain is so much wired right now to pay attention to God's sovereignty that we miss his goodness. And we are more likely to fall into the sovereignty. And we will have to train our brains to actually believe all three of these truths. I'm gonna hit the third one in a minute because this is exactly where James goes. That number one, temptations don't come from God. Number two, they come from our desires. But number three, every good and perfect gift comes from God. That's where James goes. And that is the part that I think is so easy to say, but at times so hard to believe. Because every person in this room, you have gone through something that is really, really difficult. Whether you have gone through a divorce, a loss of a child, a terrible disease, you have gone through things that make you question the goodness of God. And this is James' whole point in these sections. I don't want you to question the goodness of God. Here's why. Verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. All right, every once in a while in the letter of James, you see where he actually, it's like he's writing, and then it's almost as if he looks up to them. My beloved brothers. Like this is a personal letter. Okay, this is not just a generic thing. Okay? My beloved brothers, don't be deceived. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. It comes down from the Father of lights, which is an interesting kind of title. We'll come back to this title for God. With whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So he makes an assertion that every good gift, it comes from God. And he gives two lines of defense for it. Right? Number one, he calls him the father of lights. 
And then he does this. There's no variation or shadow due to change. This image, when you think lights, think heavenly bodies. The sun, the moon, the stars. And when you think of them, there is a certain um, firmness. Like, we know pretty much every day the sun's going to come back up. We can kind of count on that. Right? We, can, we can count on a certain movement of these celestial bodies. However, even they change. The sun, at least from our perspective, sometimes is much warmer than it is other times. It doesn't sit in the same place in the sky. The shadows are different depending on the day, where, depending on the time of day where the sun is at. During the night, you can't even see it anymore. There's change even in these massive celestial bodies. However, there's not even variation in the one who created them. The father of creation doesn't even have, I mean, when we say there's a, a change in the shadow, we know the sun hasn't actually changed. It's just a different location, right? However, God doesn't even have that much change in it. The Father of lights has always been one way and will always be that way. And you know what that way is? He gives every good and perfect gift comes from him. That never changes. No matter what, James. I mean, I'm going through, fill in your blank. This is what I'm going through. You're still telling, yes. It still never changes. And here is his big evidence for it. Verse 18, of his own will. All right, what we're about to say, it happened because God wanted it to happen. What we're about to read, nobody forced this on God. He didn't do it because he was dealing with a guilt complex. It, he, didn't, he wasn't bribed. There wasn't some reward in the future that God would get if he would do this. He decided to do what James is about to talk about. His free will, by his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of all his creatures. And when you go through first fruits, you will see it as the top thing. It is the best thing that can be offered. But when you move into the New Testament, you will also see first fruits as salvation. The argument that James is making right now is that God's greatest gift to you, he has already given. The greatest goodness that God could have shown, he has already provided. He saved you. He gave you eternal life. He took where all your sin was at and all your doubt and all the ways that you might have blamed him, he still saved you. James said, if he did that, what is it you think he won't give? I mean, this is, this is Paul in Romans 8. What can separate us from the love of Christ? If he was willing to do all of that, why would you ever think he would do anything but for your good, if that's the foundation. I came home uh, this past week, I don't remember what day it was, um, but I walk in 
And, and I see out in the front is that we have the garages in the back. And so I drive by the house to go into the, the alleyway and I see Nancy Harrell's car parked in front of our house. I, Nancy Harrell, our former children's director, parked in front of our house. And I assume she's come over to see the baby. So I walk into the house. I pull in the driveway, a garage, walk in. And here are my two boys, five and seven. That's how old they are. They're playing. I look around, no wife, no children's director, no baby. So I see a light on upstairs. They must be upstairs in the game room. Get away from the boys who were going crazy. So I walk upstairs. They're not in the game room. So I think, okay, I know what must have happened. My wife is probably Nan walking Nancy out right now. I just, as I pulled in, they went out. So I walk out front. They're not there either. I walk back in. Here was my first thought. My wife and the former children's director have left my five and seven-year-old in the care of my dog. That does not seem right. And, I, and I was, I'm freaking out for a moment. And I'm looking over at the dog, and the dog's not even doing her job. She's over at the back door, away from the kids. Like, what are you doing, dog? At least watch the kids if that's your job. Is that the back door? Oh, yeah. We have a patio. I open the door. Hey, look, there's my wife, and there's the children's director, and there's the baby. They're all right there in the backyard. The most obvious thing, if I am considering who my wife is and who Nancy Harrell is, is not that they would have left my five- and seven-year-old with the dog. Neither one of them were going to do that. For a moment, I thought it, though. And then I looked and went, you're an idiot. If God has given everything to save us, despite our sin, despite our rebellion, despite our continued rebellion, do you really think he wants anything other than the good he has already started in your life? That's James's message. Temptation never comes from God. It comes from us. And every good and perfect gift does come from God. And what James is after, and here's his big point. If we cannot believe in the goodness of God, we will not depend on God in the hardest moments of our lives. Instead, what we will do is we will start and we'll offer some prayers and then we'll have this whole period of time where we are struggling with why God did this to me and why God won't do this and how God needs to be doing this. And sometimes it will lead even to the point of people walking away from faith. Now, do you see how tragic that is? The very one that we're to cling to the one who began our salvation and wants to continue in our lives the entire way, the very one who wants to give us hope and strength is the one that we're turning on because he's being blamed for what we're going through. All right, I have an extended final illustration that I have to give the whole thing, but I did pretty well on my timing, so I think I have time to give it because... I think it will make the point stronger 
than what I can make. Right, this is out of a book um, by a woman named Nancy Guthrie. I'm going to read some sections of the book and make some comments, and I want you to listen to this idea. If we don't hold firmly to the goodness of God, we will not fully depend on God when we need him the most because we won't trust him. I'm stunned at how quickly the words sue him can come out of a 10-year-old's mouth. A product of our culture, whenever something doesn't seem fair or something bad happens, he is already in a place to blame and to find someone to make them pay. Oftentimes, when it's unfair or undeserved and it's suffering that comes into our lives, we demand to hold someone responsible. The doctor who made the error in judgment, the driver who had too much to drink, the divorce lawyer who drove a hard bargain, but the someone we most often hold responsible for suffering in our lives is God. That was my point at the beginning, that there is a way that it seems to keep coming back. God, if only you would have. Is that where you find yourself today? Are you blaming God for something that's happened in your life? How long have you been carrying it around? Blaming God. Now, we might not say we blame God outright, but we can become bitter. Bitter toward the alcoholic father or the violent attacker, not seeing that the bitterness ultimately is blaming God for the circumstances of our lives. When trouble comes, we think, I don't deserve this. And she goes on to write, much of the evil that happens in this world, in your world, in my world, is the natural consequence of humanity's sinfulness. Don't blame God, blame sin. Now, to me, that sounds great. It also sounds kind of like holy, pious words that are really hard to live up to. Sounds a little bit full of it. But she gets worse. We might not say it, but in the back of our minds, we somehow think that because Job was so godly, he should have been spared from pain. The truth is, often people who follow God suffer, not less, but more. You've seen that. Um, have you ever noticed that people who suffer are marked with a beauty, a deepening, and a transformation that only occurs when they enter the suffering and look for God in the midst of it. If God has allowed suffering into your life, it is for a purpose, a good purpose, a holy purpose. Again, part of me goes, amen, hallelujah. That's been what I've been preaching for the last three weeks. That's awesome. Thank you for backing me up, and that is just hogwash. Because in the midst of it, it's really hard to not think of those as like good platitudes. However, this lady, she has every right to say these things. Because here's the thing for all of us. It is one thing for a person who has never had a miscarriage to tell me 
how things will be okay when I have ours. It's a very different thing when somebody who's had a miscarriage and gone through it says something. She has every right to say the things that she is writing. Let me tell you a little about her life. Nancy Guthrie and her husband lost their first child, her name was Hope, to Zellweger's syndrome. She lived for six months. Can you even imagine? It's not that the baby died in the womb or was born not, it's they got to birth their baby knowing for months the baby wasn't going to live and then be with the baby for six months before Hope died. Back to her book. After Hope was born, my husband and I made a difficult decision. We knew that because we both carry the recessive gene trait for Zellweger syndrome, that any child of ours would have a 25% chance of being born with the same syndrome. So we took surgical steps to prevent a future pregnancy. Evidently, the procedure reversed itself. And today, as I write, I find myself pregnant. Upon making the startling discovery, we felt a mixture of emotions. We felt afraid as we considered what might be ahead in having and then losing another child. We felt a cautious joy as we considered that we might have another healthy child to raise and enjoy. They had a boy before that who he didn't have that. But after a series of prenatal tests, we now know that we will indeed be welcoming another child with Zellweger syndrome into our family, this time a boy, who will also have a very short and difficult life. It is much different this time, since with Hope, we didn't know she was gonna be born like this. We didn't know the suffering. We didn't know what her life and her death would be like this time we know. And you can see in that how there is some, like at least I don't have the unknown part and yet what is it like as you're going through this pregnancy to know? So we anticipate the arrival of this child. We anticipate both the, both the joy of loving him and the pain of losing him. And some days I wonder, will, I, I wonder how we will ever absorb another loss. I still feel battered from the last storm, and another one is headed our direction. In many ways, it doesn't seem fair. All right, how many times have you gone right there? How many times have you said those words, thought those words? It's not fair. Now, in her case, would anybody blame her for saying this isn't fair? Yet she goes on. I wonder if that's how Job felt. There was in the midst of the grief over losing his property, losing his family, that, they came, that came the sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head, itchy, oozing, infected sores. I imagine Job crying out, all this and now boils over my body too? You ever felt that? Hasn't it been enough, God? Like I went through this, now not now this too? Perhaps those boils were the final straw, the final unfairness that plunged Job into depression. He cursed the day of his birth. 
If you look at chapter three of Job, he curses the day he was born. All right, I'm gonna read you now the two sides. The trust in God's goodness fully does not mean we don't hurt. It doesn't mean we don't get angry. It doesn't mean we don't cry out. Right, that's what she's gonna say. So listen to this. But this godly man Job was honest. He admitted his discouragement and his despair. And frankly, I love it when we see the real Job here. To this point, he seemed a little too perfect. I mean, honestly, when you read chapter one and two, does anybody feel really inadequate? He's, I mean, all this stuff happens and Job is like, I won't curse God. Oh man, I'd have been cursing already at that point. Something, somebody. I mean, he seems too perfect. And then you get to chapter three and you're like, okay, he's human. He was angry, he was disappointed, and he was honest with God about all of it. He complained to God in his bitterness. And what I love here is to see that God, in return, appreciated Job's honesty. At the end of the book, it's Job who is praised by God for his honesty. And it's the friends in their self-righteous, religious junk that are condemned. However, Job says something really important, and this is where it doesn't cross the line. This is where Job never loses sight. This is where this lady who goes through these terrible, terrible times doesn't lose sight of the message James is trying to get across. Job says this, at least I can take comfort in this. Despite the pain, I have not denied the words of the Holy One. No matter what he's going through, no matter how many times he yells out, no matter what the pain or depression or anger or anything, he does not deny the words of the Holy One. He never loses sight of who God is. And here's what Nancy Guthrie says. She says, sometimes it feels like there is absolutely nothing to ease the pain. Have you been there? been at that point where like it just it keeps going sometimes you can't get it out of your mind there's just nothing that seems to ease the pain nothing and and people even they try to say things to take the hurt away but it doesn't help in our discouragement we may be tempted to give up on God to stop praying to start to start asking what good is it anyway sometimes what God has allowed into our lives is so bitter that we're hurt and we're angry and we don't want to talk to him about it but where does that leave us? Honestly, it leaves us on our own. No resources, no truth to dispel the despair, no hope. The truth is there is no comfort to be found away from God, at least no lasting, deep, satisfying comfort. Only the truth of God's word, the tenderness of his welcome, the touch of his healing presence can bring the kind of comfort we crave. Only his promises of purpose in life give us any real hope. Despite our feelings of discouragement, we can hold on to God's promises. We can hold on, listen, to what we know about who he is. And that is James's argument. We hold on to what we know he is. Because even though we don't understand and it is dark and it's so dark, we can't even see to take a step forward. We choose to hang on 
to keep trusting, to keep believing. As my husband and I look into the future, that is what we are determined to do. 15 years later, she's still doing it. Still holding on to the goodness of God after losing two children. Because the only thing that will really take us through our temptations, through our doubts, through our trials, is not blaming God. Also, it's not denying that you're hurting. It is being honest with God and clinging desperately to his goodness. Because that never changes. The work he began in us, he will continue. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for the grace and the love and the goodness that would save us. Lord, so many times we want to blame you We have doubts in our minds of your goodness. Father, help us to always remember you came for us out of love. That love is eternal and it never changes. You want good for our lives always. You are taking us toward a destiny of eternal life with you where there is no pain or sickness or tears or hurt or any of it. Lord, let us be honest but cling to your goodness always. That no matter what we are going through, we can lean in and depend on you. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.